I'm going to do Daniel 9 today. And, uh, this is probably the most difficult passage, or many say it is the most difficult passage in Scripture, and no matter what your view of Revelation is, you kind of have to have to use this as a springboard from where we are. Just in review, you know, we've looked at Daniel, and we've seen that there are some key words used in chapter 7, 9, and 12, uh, where uh, I think the theme of the book is clearly laid out. You have an eternal, everlasting kingdom that's promised. You have an everlasting righteousness that's promised. And you have an everlasting life that is promised. And we see these themes go over and over and over again, like running horsemen as they uh, work their way through the prophecy and, 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 and the history, history and revelation that uh, uh, is recorded by Daniel. Uh, Lord, all of these can only be realized in Jesus Christ. Okay, It's the ultimate terminus of all of these things. The only way that any eternal righteousness is available is through Jesus Christ, eternal life through Jesus Christ, and his kingdom. So our union with him is essential for that. So to me, I see Daniel, yes, as a, as a book of prophecy, but uh, it's also a book uh, that really clearly lays out uh, the, the coming Jesus Christ and sort of brings all of the Old Testament scripture to sort of a head and focus and terminus in Jesus Christ. But as we can see, that the, the Jesus Christ is, is eternal. We're talking about something, you know, when, when we see words like the end. Well, when does the, how do you have an end in an eternal thing? Well, you know, so, so you need to be careful in terms of trying to, uh, we just can't, our human mind can't get its mind around eternal and everlasting things. And we want to read words like end or this at some point in time. And, 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 and we need to see this as part of an ongoing thing. So, when we look at Daniel, this chapter can be divided into at least two parts. The first part is a prayer, and the second part is a prophecy. And I'm going to take it that way here, and, and let's just look and, and, and just listen to Daniel's prayer. And what a great example of prayer. Calvin's commentary has 50 pages on Daniel's prayer. Okay, it's such a model prayer for us as we face our troubles. Uh, in the first year of Darius, let's read chapter 9 of Daniel. In the first year of Darius, the son of Azarias, of the lineage of the Medes, who had made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, uh, understood by the books of the numbers of the years specified by the work, word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet, that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolation of Jerusalem. Then I set my face towards the Lord God to make a request by prayer and supplication with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. So, you know, it's not just a prayer or supplication and fasting and sackcloth. I mean, he really had his whole heart and being into this. As I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession and said, O oh Lord, great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and mercies with those who love him and with those who keep his commandments. We have sinned and have committed iniquity. 
We have done wickedly and rebelled, even by departing from your precepts and your judgments. Neither have we heeded your servant, the prophets, and spoke in your name to our kings and our princes, to our fathers and all the people of the land, O Lord. Righteousness belongs to you, but to us shame of face as it is this day. To the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, those near and those far off, in all the countries which they have been driven, that you have driven them because of the unfaithfulness which they have committed against you. O Lord, to us belongs shame of face, to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belongs mercy and forgiveness. Though we have rebelled against him, we have not obeyed the voice of our Lord our God to walk in his ways, which he set before us by his servants and prophets. Yet all Israel has transgressed your law and has departed so as not to obey your voice. And, and, and therefore the curse and the oath written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, has been poured out on us because we have sinned against him. And he has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our judges who judged us by bringing upon us a great disaster. For un under the whole heaven, such has never been done as which shall be done to Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come upon us, yet we have not made our prayer before the Lord our God, which was written, which, which that we might turn from our iniquities and understand your truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept the disaster in mind and has brought upon us, for the Lord our God is righteous in all of the works which he does, though we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord, our God, who, belongs, who brought his people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and made yourself a name as it is this day, we have sinned, we have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all your righteousness, I pray, let your anger and your fury be turned away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain, because of our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers. Jerusalem and the people are a reproach to all those around us. Now, therefore, our God, hear the prayer of your servant and his supplication for the Lord cause sakes cause for your face to shine on your sanctuary which is desolate oh my god incline your ear and hear open your eyes and see our desolations and the city which is called by your name for we do not present our supplication before you because of our righteous deeds but because of your great mercies oh lord hear oh lord forgive O oh Lord, listen and act. Do not delay for your own sake. And my God, for your city and your people are called by your name. So what a great prayer. What, what a great example for us. Uh, now, you know, to kind of get the context here, you know, it, it has some contextual stuff here. Now, this is, this is after Darius had come into power. And i see if I can find, Lewis gave me this timeline somewhere here. I don't hear a minute. Let's see if I can find it. Well, I know it's in here somewhere. I just don't know where. And 
I can fumble all day and not find it. But anyway, it's, uh, sorry about that. But anyway, first year, if you notice that Daniel is not in chronological order, and, and, and Lois pointed out from her, from her Bible, which has arranged these things in the order of chronology, and which is a good point, uh, they're this way prophetically for a purpose. Uh, but nonetheless, this, this day here, Jerusalem has been destroyed. Daniel first was taken into captivity. Jerusalem had not been destroyed. Likely by this time he has. It has. So when he speaks of, of Jerusalem and Judah, he is speaking of it in a way as if it still exists, uh, in a sense, uh, as the people of God, the way we see it today. He's almost in a pseudo-Christian framework here. Uh, speaking of Jerusalem, and we need to keep that context in mind as we go through and look at his work. Now, Jeremiah 29, let's go look at that. Jeremiah 29, this all, he's referring back to prophecy that Jeremiah wrote. Jeremiah 29. He is basing his prayer on Scripture. He, he, is, he is actually fulfilling what, what was Jeremiah said would have to be done in order for, um, in order for this to take place. So, you know, Jeremiah's letter to the captives, and these are the words of the letter of Jeremiah, the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the remainder of the elders who were carried away captive to the priests and to the prophets and to all the people that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away captive from Jerusalem and to Babylon. So, you know, here it is, they're in Babylon, they're being carried away. This happened after Jehoiakim the king and queen mother and the eunuchs and the princes of Judah and Jerusalem and the craftsmen and the smiths had departed from Jerusalem. This letter was sent by the hand of Elisha, the son of, of Shaphan and Jemariah and the son of Helkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, uh, sent to Babylon to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, king of Babylon, saying, and, and again, I'm going to read this very briefly, but I'm going to focus on, on the guidance that was given here, which was build houses and, I'm going to verse, verse 9, build houses and dwell in them, plant gardens and eat the fruit. Take wives and get sons and daughters, and take wives for your sons and give your daughters to the husband, so that they may bear sons and daughters, that you may be increased there and not diminished. And seek the peace of the city, which I have caused you to be carried away captive, and pray to the Lord for it. For it is peace you will have for in its peace you will have peace. For thus says the Lord of hosts and God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are in the midst in the midst deceive you, nor listen to your dreams which have caused you to be dreamed. For their prophecies falsely prophesy falsely to you in my name. I have not sent them, says the Lord. So this really is what guidance to us today in any kind of civil situation we find ourselves. This is how we're to behave. This is, in essence, the same thing that Paul tells us in Romans 13. We're to live in peace and unity with the, you know, with the people we're in. We're, we're to be productive citizens. We're to have children. We're to seek the peace of that city. And then he gets into uh, chapter 29, verse, verse, verse 10 here. And thus says the Lord, after 70 years are completed in Babylon. So you know, he's telling about something that's going to happen in the future. After, you know, I will visit you and perform my good work towards you and will cause you to return to this place. For I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord God, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and go and pray to me, 
and will listen to, and, and I will listen to you and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart I will be found by you says the Lord and I will bring you back from your captivity I will gather you from all the nations from all the places which I have driven you says the Lord and I will bring you into the place from which I cause you to be carried away captive and the reason I'm reading all of this is the is the important emphasis here on the the necessity of this is being fulfilled through prayer. That God himself is saying, hey, this is a vital ingredient of this deliverance is this spirit of prayer that will be in the people looking for the promises of God. We see this in Ezra, Nehemiah, and Daniel, and ultimately as the people of Jerusalem are brought back. I want to just just kind of kind of give you a little bit more in the context of Jeremiah because I think it's helpful because this Jeremiah context sort of sets the stage for Daniel. And I'm just going to skip around and kind of get get to, get a, get a, get, a, get a little bit of context here. So in chapter 30, the the, the subject is the restoration of Israel. And, I mean I'm in Jeremiah chapter 30. Thus speaks the Lord God of Israel, saying, Write in the book for yourself all the words I have spoken to you. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord God, that I will bring back, I will bring, I will bring back from captivity my people Israel and Judah, says the Lord. So here's the promise, not just the Judah who was taken into captivity, but the Israel as well. Now, Israel was in Assyria and they're all over that nation. How does that I mean, you know, we read of people from 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 Babylon coming back, but was that really fulfilled? You know, when the people of Judah came back, and maybe in a sense it was, but I still think there's a sense in which it's, a, it's more of a metaphorical meaning and applies to us. And, and then in verse 10, Therefore do not fear, O my servant Judah, Jacob, says the Lord, nor be dismayed, O Israel, for behold, I will save you from afar and your seed from the land of their captivity. Jacob shall return and have rest and quiet, and no one shall make him afraid. For I am with you, says the Lord God, I, to save you, though I have made a full end of all the nations where I have scattered you, yet I will not, I will not make a complete end of you, but I will correct you in justice, and I will let you go altogether unpunished. I will not let you go altogether unpunished. So here is a promise to not make a full end to the people of Israel. So help me out here. You know, this, this is, were the people of Israel... Uh, you know, is there is there no longer a promise? Is there no longer a place in the kingdom of God? For people, now, you know, you know I have to take that a number of different ways. But I just want to keep in mind here that Scripture clearly promises that there's going to be an eternal uh, presence of the people of God. Now, maybe this is fulfilled in us. Maybe so. Okay, but this this passage is to those people that are scattered uh, in verse thirty, chapter twenty-two. For you shall be my people, and I will be your God. Now, again, this is ultimately fulfilled in us. There's some real sense of that, but it, but it, just, it, but it applies to them as well. Behold, the whirlwind of the Lord goes forth with fury, a continual whirlwind. I will fall violently on the head of the wicked. A fierce anger of the Lord will not return until he has done it, and until he has performed the intent of his heart. In the latter days you will consider it. And then it talks about the remnant of Israel being saved. And at the same time, says the Lord God, I will be the God of all the families of Israel, and they shall be my people. And the Lord says, The people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness, Israel, when I went out to give them rest. The Lord has appeared to me of old, saying, Yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. 
Therefore, with loving kindness, I have drawn you. Keeps on going. Verse 6, For there shall be a day when the watchman will cry on Mount Ephraim, Arise and let us go up to Zion, to the Lord our God. Verse 8, Behold, I will bring them from the north country. I will gather them from the ends of the earth. Among them the blind and the lame, the woman with child, the one who labors, the child together. The great throng shall return, that they shall worship with weeping. They shall come with weeping, and with supplication I will lead them. I will cause them to walk by the river waters in a straight way in which they shall not stumble. For I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim my firstborn. Verse 10, Hear the word of the Lord, O nations, and declare it to the isles afar off, i.e. us, and say, He who scattered Israel will gather him and keep him as a shepherd does his flock. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and ransomed him from the hands of one stronger than he. Therefore they shall come and sing at the heights of Zion, streaming to the goodness of the Lord. Verse 15, Thus says the Lord, A voice was heard in Raymond, lamentations and bitter Rachel weeping for her children. And again, that may be a reference to Bethlehem in that area there, refusing to be comforted for her children because there are no more. Verse 22, How long? Will you gad about, O you backsliding daughter? For the Lord has created a new thing on earth. A woman shall encompass a man. Kind of sounds like the church to me. Kind of sounds like a a, a, a very metaphorical statement. And then we get into the promises of the new covenant in chapters 31 and and 32. Behold, the days are coming, says one, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with her fathers in the day that I took them into the by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, and I was a husband of them, says the Lord. But this covenant that I shall make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord, I will put my law in their minds and write it in their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be their people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man and his brother know the Lord, for they shall know me from the least to the greatest of them, says the Lord." For I will forgive iniquity and their sin. I will redeem her and and their sin I I will remember no more. Verse 4, if heaven above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out beneath, I will not cast off all the seed of Israel for all they have done, says the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that the city shall be built up for the Lord from the towers of Hanindel to the corner gate. The surveyor line shall again extend forward until the hill of Geber. And it shall turn towards Gorath. And the whole valley of the dead bodies and the ashes and all the fields as far as Book Kidron to the corner of the course gate towards the east shall be holy to the Lord. And I shall, and it shall not be plucked up or thrown down any more forever. And then in chapter 32, we get into the, a more clear understanding of the new covenant in the 33, etc. And, and you have this excellency of the restored nation. We don't have time. To, to read that, I'll just, I'll just take one verse, chapter 33, 9. Then it, shall be, then it shall be to me a name of joy and praise and an honor before all nations of the earth who shall hear all the good that I do to them, and they shall fear and tremble for all the goodness and all the prosperity that provide for it. <clears throat> verse 15. In those days and in that time, I will, I will cause to grow up to David a branch of righteousness. He shall exercise judgment and righteousness on the earth. And the days Judah shall be, will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell safely. And in the name of which she is called, the Lord our righteousness. Okay, now, now 
Help me out here. Does that sound like a promise? You know, no, no doubt Jerusalem was a story. But is there not some real sense in which he is using the phrase Israel and Zion and the people of God to speak of us, the church? I think so. I think there's a real sense in which that only meaning can be there because, you know, if you take it too literally, how can God promise these eternal things to the city of Jerusalem which has been destroyed? The temple's been destroyed. I mean, it, what, what is the meaning of these passages? What, what is this new covenant about? Isn't that new covenant not about what was brought about by Jesus Christ for all people of the earth through Him that believe in Him, that obey His commandments, that follow His word, that love Him? Is that not what is, we're talking about here? We're not, we don't, this isn't just the scope about Jerusalem. This book is not, this Old Testament is not just a story of the Jews. It is a story of the people of God, of which the Jews were the first older brother, so to speak, in, in, in a real sense. So I mean, that's the context. And so when we, go into, when we go into Daniel, we need to look before and after. When we look at Daniel, we need to look and read that in the context of the entire Old Testament prophecy, which is a prophecy of salvation to many peoples, to the lame, the blind, uh, etc., uh, uh, of many nations, many countries. We see Daniel, and we see in Matthew, when we read the book of Matthew, we need to read it in the context of, hey, Daniel's prophecy was about an eternal kingdom. It was about an eternal righteousness. It was about an eternal life. The main topic was not about the city of Jerusalem or the Jews. Yes, they were a part of it. Yes, they're part of the wolf and wabbit of it. They were an example, an exemplar. But that's not the main topic. The main topic is Jesus Christ and His kingdom, which is eternal, His righteousness, which is everlasting, and His everlasting life, which can only be... That's the subject. That's the contents. And so we need to read prophecy in that light that, that it's very messianic in its message and content. At least I see it that way. So let's, you know, any, before I move on to the, to the prophetic part, any discussion on that? Any challenges to what I've said here? Challenge just a, a reiteration of the, you know, the same thing for a different framework. We see that through Isaiah, uh, the section in Isaiah with the the servant starts in Isaiah 41 and goes through really to 53. The large chunk mm-hmm. of Isaiah, mm-hmm. you have the suffering servant and the relationship between or the, who the servant is. It's you know, the anointed one, the Messiah, but it's also Jacob and Israel, and there's a sense in which you kind of the lines are blurred purposely by the Lord because mm-hmm. that was really the the people of God, the, the Old Testament people of God had a messianic role in the sense that they were supposed to yeah. go out and evangelize the the Gentiles. They were supposed to bring in the nations, and now and then you fast forward to like sections of Scripture like Romans 11, and Israel remains in the ethnic sense. And now the Gentiles are being used to provoke ethnic Israel mm-hmm. and jealousy mm-hmm. to come back, mm-hmm. the older brother to come back mm-hmm. to the father. Um, so yeah, I mean, we can't have the... There's a wrong view that completely does away with the distinction of Israel as a, as a nation, mm-hmm. which we can't do because the Bible doesn't do that. Right. You know, we can't we can't lump we can't push force everything into Israel as is 
the proto-Christian church mm -hmm. of all biblical prophecy. Right, right. Yeah, they, they, they were a real entity and had right, real right. reality associated right, with them. Right. That's true. Yes, yeah, indeed. If we didn't have Romans 11 in our Bible, then maybe I'd go along with that argument. Right. But I can't get past Romans 11 because well, Paul doesn't, you know, he says Romans 11, 1, uh, has God cast away his people? Certainly not, for I am also an Israelite. And he's not saying I'm an Israelite in the sense of I'm a Christian. He says, of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin, God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says Elijah to plead with God against Israel? So there's a sense in which Israel is being used, and Paul does it, as an ethnic reality. But they haven't been cast away. Right. Okay. All right. So it hasn't right. been cast away. It's right. still, there's still an abiding Right. There's, um, a, there's a reality. A reality right. there, yeah. Right. So there's, and that's an eschatological reality right. one day. Right. So I think when we're reading biblical prophecy, like Daniel, like we have to also leave room in our right. view that Israel is still, the ethnic side of Israel is still a part of this. Right. You know, we're not dispensationalists. We're not you know, right. letting them steer right. the ship, so to speak, right. and waiting on what the Lord's right. going to do with them in order right. to redeem us or right. save us. But they're still there. I mean, we can't yes, go away. Nope. <laughs> do away right. completely. I, I, I agree with that. I agree with that. And and so, yeah. I, and first of all, let me just step back a minute and say that you know I'm coming at this from a pretty, I'll say, a biased position. Okay, I, I would just fully admit my bias here. I when I read this, I see these prompt. When I read the Old Testament. I see the historical reality that's there, but I see the Christian church in its embryo form being spoken to. I see it speaking to me. I don't have to interpret it. Oh, it was about these people of Israel and therefore the analogy of them to us. I speak speaking to me. I'm, I'm sorry. I, I see I see as a direct revelation to me, okay, and through the example of Christ who was present there and his relationship to his people. And so so I, I just, I just, I'm just arguing against putting these, you know, against anything. To me, it's back to my main point. What is the main message? Jesus Christ is coming, okay? And with Jesus Christ comes His kingdom, His righteousness, and His everlasting life. And so that's really what I'm trying to communicate the way I see it. And I see it passionately. And, and I, see two, I, see, I see several ways where this doctrine is somewhat diluted. One of them is in dispensationalism, which, believe it or not, when we read these passages here, when, they, when it talks about this coming, you know, anointed one, they don't see that as Jesus Christ. They see that as an as a anointed one that's going to come and make a covenant. Some kind of antichrist is going to make a covenant with people in the future and is going to convince them to be whatever. I have no idea. And then Jerusalem will be restored and sacrifices will be offered there. Blasphemy. Okay, to me, that is just sheer blasphemy. All right, I, I'm just offended by that. I mean, this, this message is not, this is about Jesus Christ. Don't make it about something other than Jesus Christ. And if I err in that, shoot me, all right? Uh, on the other end, I see a lot of people that want to make this too Jewish, Jewish referenced. Okay, and we'll get into that. I, I, I'll, I'll elaborate on that as I get through this because as you read the commentaries, there is a, there's a tendency by some of them to see all of this. They come in with a preconceived idea that all of this is about Jerusalem and the destruction of Jerusalem, and this is all about that. No, that's an anecdotal detail. That that is a that is a detail. That is a period mark at the end of a sentence. All right, it's not the sentence itself. It's not the main topic. 
And likewise, when we go to Matthew and Revelation, we need to keep that in mind as well. I don't see that as the point. This is a, yes, this is a judgment on the Jews, but it's also a judgment on us, okay? All right. It, it, yes, it says a promise to the Jews. It's also a promise to us as the people of God. So let me, let me, stay, out of, let me stay out of the ether sphere and get back to reality here on, on this stuff. Uh, and, and let's go into this prophecy. And I'm going to divide it into, it's hard to divide. I'm going to try here because it's just too big a bite to eat one time. Eat it one time. When I was speaking, I'm in verse 20 in Daniel now, chapter 9. When I was speaking, praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication before God, my God, before, before the Lord, my God, for the holy mountain of my God, yes, I was speaking in prayer. And the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, reached me about the time of the evening offering. And he informed me and talked with me and said, Oh, Daniel, I have now come forth to you to give you a skill to understand. At the beginning of your supplication, the command went out, and I have come to tell you that you are greatly beloved. Therefore, consider the matter and understand the vision. So then he gets into the vision that we're going to get into. So it ties back to the prayer. And again, emphasizes the relationship of our prayer to, to the outworking of God's providential mercies and actions. Okay, we're part of that. We're, we're in the wolf and wolf of that, just as Daniel was. Okay. And I'm going to go through this in some pieces here as best I can. Seventy weeks are determined, verse 20, 24. Seventy weeks are determined for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression. There are the six things listed here. Keep in mind, I'm going to list six things. One, to finish the transgression. Two, to make all an end of sins. Number three, to make reconciliation for iniquity. Number four, to bring an everlasting righteousness. Number five, to seal up vision and prophecy, and number six, and to anoint the most holy. So there's six things that are promised, promised here. To finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make a reconciliation of iniquities, to bring an everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Again, I would argue that these all speak of the work of Jesus Christ. Okay, this is, help me out. Is there anybody, is there any other figure other than the coming, the life, work, and death, and resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ? Is there anything other than that that fulfills all six of these things? And are not all six of these things fulfilled there? Further, is he talking about the sins of the Jews? Or is he talking about your and my sins as well? Did Jesus die on the cross just for the Jews? Was that work that he did only about Judah and the people of Jerusalem? I don't think so. It was about us. There's a real sense in which that finishing of transgression was a work done by Christ for all men. When he died, he only had go to Hebrews 9.26. Uh, you know, he died once. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. 
We'll see that word many again here. I don't believe that many refers to just the Jews. I believe it refers to us too. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. Okay. Now Hebrews was written after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I think we can all favorably argue that. He will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. Okay, so there is, there is, there is the coming of Jesus Christ. There is the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ where he put an end to transgression. He made an end of sin. He, he made reconciliation for iniquities. He brought in an everlasting righteousness. And again, that word everlasting righteousness is where I'm getting that as my theme here because it's the three places he uses this word everlasting. To seal up vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. So all six of those things were fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Okay, now we could argue over, okay, but now it's the anointing of the Holy One. Now is it the most holy. Again, when he was, he was baptized, he was anointed. I think that was fulfilled at that time. Uh, to bring in an everlasting righteousness, I think his death and resurrection did that. To make a record of death and resurrection for that removal, not for the others, okay. Now to seal up vision and prophecy, now, how do you interpret that? Does that mean that, 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 is he talking, or what does he mean by seal of vision? Vision is a word used in Old Testament scripture for the Old Testament prophecy. I think this primarily refers to the completing or the fulfillment. This is basically all these things that were promised in the Old Testament are going to come true. Okay. There's also a sense in which he does seal up prophecy, but you know, some people interpret that to be, oh, the pullback into Jerusalem thing. Oh, this at 70 AD, magically, the canon was closed. And that's what's meant by, I don't get that in there at all. The canon was closed when the last author wrote the last word, whenever that was. I don't believe that that was in 70 AD. I have no idea when it was. Could have been after 70 AD. Could have been before. But it was not sealed. It was... It, 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 you don't you don't read you don't import the concept of the destruction of Jerusalem and read all of this in there. That's all I'm trying to make. To me, I think the more Christian reading is that this is the fulfillment of prophecy. And yes, Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of prophecy. He himself is the fulfillment of Christ. But there is an eternal sense in which prophecy is still being unfolded in Jesus Christ. Is it sealed up? Is there a new revelation? No, there's no new revelation. When did that new revelation cease? It ceased. When the last canonical New Testament author wrote the last word, that's when it ceased. Okay, I, I don't know what date that was. Okay, and, and so I'm not going to go further than that. Any discussion on that part? I mean, is there any way to read this as help me out here? Can anybody give me an argument for this referring to anybody other than Jesus Christ? I can't. I can't imagine it. Okay. Good luck. All right. All right, and you got Isaiah 61, you know, 161.6 coming in here. And let's just look back at that to kind of keep the Old Testament floating in our mind here as we go through this. Isaiah 61.6. Okay. And you shall be named, let me, go, let me go back to 61. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captive and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, to all of joy for mourning, 
and garments of praise for the spirit of heaviness. And they shall be called trees of righteousness, the plantings of the Lord, that he may be glorified. And they shall rebuild the old ruins, and he will rise up in the form of desolation. And they shall repair the ruined city and desolations of many generations. And strangers shall stand and feed your flock, and the sons of the foreigners shall be your plowmen and your vine dressers. But you shall be named the priest of the Lord. You shall call upon the servants of our, they shall call you the servants of our God. You shall eat the riches of the Gentiles, and in their glory you shall boast. Instead of your shame, you shall be given double honor, and instead of confusion, they will rejoice in their portion. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess double. Everlasting joy shall be theirs. Um, verse 11, For the earth shall bring forth its bud, and the garden causes the things to be sown and to spring forth. So the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring forth before all nations. You know, we could go on and get into the context of that. But to me, the only point I want to make is that I don't believe this was specifically a sacrifice. I believe it's a sacrifice for you, me, and all people. I believe this is a promise, not just to the Jews, but to Israel, the, new, the full Israel, in the broadest, most metaphorical sense. That's my belief in this. Verse 25. Now therefore and understand that going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem, that Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks, and the street shall be built again and the wall even until the troublesome times. And again, I'm not going to get into 70 times 7, but there's a sense in which the 70 weeks, that's 7 times 10 here. Again, we're, we're here seven weeks. That's actually the actual words are seven sevens, okay? They're set, you know, there there are forty nine, all right, okay, that are there in sixty two weeks, okay. So there there's there is this time period that's there. Most evangelical scholars date this to the decree going forth. These how many years after the decree, the Anaxerxes to, to to bring forth the the, the remnant. Again, the seventy part is the fault. You know, again, that was stated earlier. There's a point of where they're in captivity for so many years, then they rebuild the city for so many years. And then there's the coming of Jesus Christ. And many have laid this out. I, 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 I just humbly have to share what they say, basically, in their, in their dating. Uh, you know, they go back to the time, and they see when this decree was mentioned, and they add the time up, and it looks like you know, it comes out to be 26 A.D., 27 A.D. And then they say, well, no, not really, because zero. From, eight, from B.C. to A.D., there's really not... There's really not a year in the middle, so you have to take a year away. It gets you to the middle of 26 A.D., which is when Jesus Christ's ministry began, all right, when most people believe his ministry began. Now, there's some people that believe his ministry began in 33 A.D., and I'm not going to get into that argument here. I'm going to stick with the 30, 30, and, and because I think it kind of lays out this argument very well. And, and again, we don't know the exact date because of the framework has only gotten to the reign of this king and the reign of that king, and you can kind of get to narrow it down to a kind of clear three or four year kind of region here where there's no debate, but... But nonetheless, we believe, most Scott believe that's in 30 A.D., uh, Jesus uh, 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 died on the cross in 26, in the middle of 26, as he was anointed, his prophecy began. And so that kind of gives us this context for this period of time. And now, and after the 62 weeks, the Messiah shall be cut off and not for himself and the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. To the end, it shall be with a flood. 
and to the end of the end of wars, devastations are determined. Again, there's a lot, a lot of different opinions here. Okay, but clearly, after the 62 weeks, or, or that, or, or, or you know, or and, and you know, it, it, we'll get into a half a week here in a minute somewhere. I think. Second of that will be with the flood, and he shall be passed. We're in my half a week here. I'm not going to get tied up in that. Okay, the middle of the week. But in the middle of the week. Now, again, I'm going to read ahead. I'm, I'm going to go ahead and read ahead and come back. Okay, the, they said, the destroy the sanctuary, and the end shall be the, the flood, and the end of the war. Desolations are determined. Then it, he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wings of abomination shall he shall be one who makes who makes desolate, even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. What does all that mean? Well, you know, again, let's just kind of focus in on some of those key words. I'm going to take from from uh, 26 through 27 as kind of a, as, as a frame of all together. It's clearly in the middle of the 70th week, i.e., three and a half days. You add three and a half days to 26 and a half, you get to 30, where Jesus died. There is, except for a few dispensationalists, most people see that as the death of Jesus Christ. There are some in the dispensational camp, not all, who see this as the future coming of a... a, a I'm not even going to try to explain it, okay? Some sort of future prophecy, Jerusalem is going to be rebuilt, people are going to be there, they're going to be offering sacrifices, uh, you know... Uh, I give up. Okay, this sounds to me like Jesus Christ again. I'm, this is a, this book. What is the subject? The subject is the everlasting righteousness, the everlasting kingdom, the everlasting right. The subject is Jesus Christ. You know, He's going to come. He is the Messiah. He shall be cut off. That's a, that's symbolic language for His death, but not for Himself. I, you know, not because of anything He did, but for us. Okay, and then the question is, who are the people of the Prince to come? shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Okay, let me just deal with that part right here. Okay. I would have to argue that most commentaries, and even I would have to believe that that is principally, if not exclusively speaking, of the destruction of the city of Jerusalem. Okay. I, I want to argue that, that it's not here. That's not my point of making. The prince of the people to come, that's probably a reference to Titus, Vespasius, who was who came and destroyed Jerusalem in 70 A.D., but a couple of points here. How did you get that? Was 70 A.D. Let me give you this 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 last week, three and a half weeks, three and a half days get you to Jesus' death and resurrection. Three and a half more days will probably get you to the stoning of Stephen. Maybe okay, we don't even know the date of that. That's merely speculation, but it won't get you to 70 A.D. when the temple fell. So these 70 weeks, the question is, is it, they cannot be logically ending at the stoning of Stephen. I don't believe it. Okay? I, I can't imagine that. That, that, the seven, that. that last three and a half weeks is to be taken, and most commentators say it's to be taken symbolically. Okay? Because it logically cannot be. It cannot logically be the stoning. Well, maybe it could be the stoning of Stephen. Somebody help me out here. I, I can't imagine how that event... Uh, would be the that did the Roman emperor come and destroy the Jerusalem before Stephen was stoned? No, he did not. I mean, it can't logically be. 
So the only way most commentaries can get around this issue, which I think is legitimate, is that we're still in that half a week. Okay, now some argue, no, 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 the half a week was another, it ended up in the fall of Jerusalem. Okay. Okay, what makes three and a half days? 70 minus 26 and a half, 30, over 40, 30. I have no idea, okay? Most commentators, I would say, they've got the way that Westminster divines saw it, they saw that we're in that period today. We're talking about an era that we're in today. And it makes a big difference when you read Matthew. Because to read Matthew as if the destruction, you have to kind of import that idea back into here again. And I, I can't see it. I see this as there's no, there is just as good. I would argue this one. I'll, I'll, I'll at least concede this. That there's logically just as good an argument for making it the fall of Jerusalem as logically that we're still in it. Okay, we, we don't have enough landmarks to decide that. Okay, I would argue other than the rest of Scripture, the, and I would argue that what is decisive in my mind is it's an everlasting kingdom. It's an everlasting righteousness. It's an everlasting life. It's about Jesus Christ and His work that's going to be going. I see that as something can. I, although I admit that this is about the destruction of the city in Jerusalem. Now, how can Jesus destroy the city and the sanctuary? Is that the destruction of Zion? Is that the destruction of the people of Israel? No, it is not. Okay, it may be as a nation, but not as, we're the people of Israel. So you have to kind of have some sense in which you take these words. Either that or you say, this is all a lie. Jesus, I mean, the, the prophecy lied when it talked about an everlasting promise to the people of Israel, I mean, to, to the sense of Israel as a people. How do you, you know, you, in order to logically fit this in, you've kind of got to, you kind of got to step away and look back at this and read it in the context of Daniel's message. Daniel's message is an everlasting righteousness, an everlasting kingdom, an everlasting life in Jesus Christ. And to me, that's the context that governs my understanding of these passages. Okay, I have no basis to say that that date of the city can be it corresponds to the end of 70 weeks. I have no basis to come up with. There's no logical basis. It could be. I can't say it won't happen. There is, there is a reference here to the people of a prince to come. Now, some see this as an Antichrist, and, and it could be maybe in an echoing sense in which the Antichrist is, continues to seek to destroy the people of God over and over and over again, but that's a derivative reading. That is a secondary reading, it has to be based on the, what I consider the historical grammatical reading, which would be somebody's going to come and destroy Jerusalem. Okay, There's no doubt about it. I, I think that's pretty clear in my mind. So I'm not, I'm not getting around that. I'm just saying, is that the main message? I don't think so. Okay. And the end, it shall be with a flood until the end of the war. Desolation shall be determined. Well, I'm going to come back. What, is, what does this desolations mean? Let's go, let's go look at how he uses that word elsewhere in this passage to try to understand what that means. <clears throat> he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. Now, is that talking about an antichrist confirming the covenant with many several thousand years from now? I don't get it. I don't see it. Scripture actually often refers to that covenant with many. We read one of the passages earlier. I don't remember which one. Talked about you know that covenant with many. That language is a scriptural phrase for the covenant of grace with many. I don't believe, as as Ken Gentry and many and the preterists can't believe that it's talking about that covenant with many with Israel. There's a covenant. What, what's this covenant with Israel? 
This covenant, there's, there's only one covenant. Covenant of grace. Covenant of works. There's not a, yet another I mean, You know, I, I don't get it. Okay, to me, this is, a, this is clear language. He shall confirm a covenant with many in one for one week. That one week isn't over yet. Okay? We're in that one week. That's how I read it. Well, because how, how would you read it as a little, how would you, even if you take the day-year theory, did this covenant end when Stephen was stoned? Oh, they stoned Stephen. It's all over. This doesn't make any sense to me. Okay, You've got to read that last week in my mind in order to make any sense of this at all. There's something different about that last week, particularly the last half of that week, that extends on to us today. That's the way I read it. I, I can't find any other reading that satisfies me. I'm sorry. Okay, But in the middle of that week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. Now here, you're out. You're out now, let's just break it in line here. This is clearly not chronological. Because he's already talked about the destruction of the temple. Even though he talked about that earlier, that doesn't mean it's in chronological order here. He is talking, it's scriptural language here. This end time language, this prophecy, jumbles up the history in terms of time and sequence from an eternal perspective. You put an eternal vector on this work, okay? I'm throwing a dart and I'm going to add an eternal vector to it. It goes on forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. You, you can't just put it into a context of time and get your mind around. In the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. Who is the he here? Is the he Jesus Christ will confirm a covenant with many. And in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. I believe unequivocally that is Jesus Christ, that in the middle of that week, three and a half days in 30 AD, uh, that he, uh, day year, using the day year analogy. And again, back to the day year analogy, the argument is that when uh, Jeremiah and other prophets add something like the morning and evening, they're referring to literal days. But when they don't, they're referring to metaphorical days. I kind of buy that and accept that premise. That's about Jesus Christ. He shall confirm a covenant of many for one week. And, and who are the many? The many is us. The many is the... The confirm. This isn't, this isn't making a new covenant. This isn't cutting a new covenant. This is confirming a covenant. The covenant was already in existence. It will be in existence when it's over. There's no possible way I can read that unless I want to import in some kind of idea that this many happens to be the Jews and they're going to have, he's going to give them some blessing, an extra time to repent until Jerusalem falls. But maybe so. Maybe there's some sense there. I don't get it. I'm sorry. I just don't get it. it the plain reading. Is he shall confirm the cup that's, that's Jesus Christ in the middle of this week, confirm it by his death, blood, death, resurrection. That's what that means. In the middle of the week. That's that the middle of the week, it's three and a half days. That's when he that's when, that's when he died. Alright, that's when his death. He shall bring an end to sacrifice and order. Now again, that's just a summary way of saying these six things that were said earlier to finish this congregation, to make the end of this okay. But I want to there's another meaning. He will bring an end to sacrifice and offering. When did the validity of the Old Testament sacrifices end? Was it at the fall of Jerusalem or when Jesus Christ died and the veil in the temple was rent? I think it's the latter. I think when Jesus Christ died, he died on the cross. That's when those Old Testament, uh, uh, so no longer a sacrifice. And actually, when it talks about this abomination, the wings of the abomination shall be made desolate. What are the wings of the abomination? There is all kind of confusion. Most people see that. Those are the Roman emperors had, the Roman army had eagles and, you know, as the standards. And this is the eagles of Titus walking over the temple. There's no sense in which the people 
that I can find where the people actually adultery or, or committed some, you know, what they did. Let me tell you, what, I, I've been to Jerusalem. Most of the stones were pulled out, and not all of them. What happened was when the temple mounted, they wanted to get the gold out of the rocks. Okay, these men were not motivated. Oh, my, oh, I got, I got to offer sacrifice here. That's what no. They wanted to get the gold that poured down between the rocks out. They were, just, they were motivated to destroy this temple. Uh, you know, that's where that comes from. The wing, the abom- wings of the abomination. What is the abomination? I don't believe it's something about Titus coming here in 70 AD and having a having an eagle up there. I don't believe that's what it was. I believe that it ties back to the words before. He will bring an end to sacrifice and offering. The continued sacrifices and offering in the temple were an abomination. They were trying to, they were just like in many ways the Roman mass is. It tries to kill and resurrect Jesus Christ again and again and again. That's an abomination to the Lord. That's what it talks about, the abomination. of the, that's, what, that's what's referred to here. You know, that's what Jung, E.J. Young, I get from E.J. Young that idea. I think he's exactly right. And, and the wings of the one shall make desolate. Now, what is the one shall make desolate mean? Okay, well, that's a little hard to understand. I, will, I would argue that the wings, what the, the subject is the wings of the abomination. E.J. Young sees that as the temple, the way a temple is built, like the wings of our church up here, in a sense of a pinnacle of the temple. Jesus Christ, was, remember, Satan brought him to the temple, the pinnacle of the temple, and offered all of these kings. That's the wings. I, the, the temple itself was an abomination, became an abomination, because of the any continued worship there. To me, I see that. That's the meaning I get. And yes, maybe a Roman emperor brought the end of it. Maybe he brought an end of it. That could have been But he did bring an end to that temple that happened historically. Why did it happen? How did it happen? I don't, have, I don't believe it happened because of Roman hold-up wings, uh, eagles. Or I believe he's talking about the wings of the body. I think it's a very good interpretation. And one of my, okay, yes, it was made desolate. Even now, here we get to the last. Even until the consummation, which is determined, is poured out on the desolate. Now, when is that over? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I haven't got my mind around that yet. I don't know. I think it. I think it probably continues. Okay, because I believe it's part of the seventy weeks. I believe there's still things going on there. I've got like a still like a few minutes if anybody wants to discuss this. But I'm finished with my part. I agree with you all the way up to the last part because I see that um, what's being poured out on the desolate. So we have, uh, I think the makes desolate is not a verb at the end where you know the part of verse 27 says, on the wings of abomination shall be one who makes desolate. I don't mm-hmm. think that's verbal. I think it's nominal and it's referring to the desolate. Because Jesus made the temple economy desolate in the sense that once it's fulfilled, it's emptied of all of its meaning. Yeah. Now I'm using Hebrews as that. Let me back up on that. When did the temple no longer have a meaning? When the veil was rent. Okay, great. Right, okay, right, I'll right. go back to that point. So okay. Jesus, right. yeah. So when the veil is rent, okay. that's the desolation. That's the emptying okay. of the temple of okay. its economy and right. its meaning. Okay. And then that which is being poured out, the consummation of that. I think could be seen, I'm not dogmatic here, but I say I think you could see the consummation of that desolation is 70 AD when the temple economy is forcefully taken away 
yeah. for being able to be used as an abomination. Right. I hear the argument, and I see some of it, but I go back to my argument. Eternal kingdom, eternal right, 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 right. That that 70 weeks we're still in, the 70 weeks are not over. There's no yeah. logical reason to make the 70, 70 weeks over at the fall of Jerusalem, in my mind. Yeah, I would, okay. I would say that verse 27 becomes a uh, parenthetical period of time within that 70 weeks. Yeah. Yeah. You know, as if it's like a it's like a, a telescoping in a little bit right. on a period of time. That would be my only. Right. I I agree with you. I think it's a, it's a continuation. Right. The the destruction of the temple was the end of a certain economic relationship, yes. but it, the fullness of that is in Christ right. and goes all the way to right. the end. I mean, right. we're not nothing. There's some right. so, something ended in seventy AD, but not. Everything. Right. <laughs> right. Okay, I agree. Okay. Well, anyway, we can we can pick this up next. We're going we're going to do chapter twelve, and we're going to reflect upon this whole idea and try to put it in context of the rest of scripture. But think about this, and 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 this is difficult stuff. And like I said, some of this I posit because other people posit it. It makes sense to me, but I don't sure that's fully the answer. Like on that last ending verse, I be I'll be honest. I don't fully understand what that means. I'm I just honest. I haven't gotten my mind around that yet. Let's go, to Lord, in prayer. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you that in Jesus Christ, because we are such sinners and we fail in heart, mind, and deed, that there is an eternal righteousness, which this chapter is about. This is the topic of this chapter, an eternal righteousness available in Jesus Christ. That's what this is about. Uh, Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you for the eternal kingdom that we're made part of through the blood and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and his ascension into heaven forever. We thank you that he will be victorious and every knee will bow. But we thank you that there's eternal life available in Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to focus on these truly messianic gospel messages which are here in the Old Testament. Lord, let us not put anything or any idea in the middle of those. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.